0: This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 15 and season two of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined today by another awesome guest. He is the founder of Objective-C.io, the author of many awesome books about Swift, and the co-host of the new Swift Talk video series. It's Chris Eidhoff. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hello, John. Hi,
1: how's it going? It's going well. It's uh, actually a sunny and cold day here uh, in Germany.
0: That's super nice. Yeah, you're based in Berlin, right?
1: I I used to be based in Berlin, uh, and I moved out to the countryside uh, about an hour north of Berlin um, just a few months ago
0: getting your countryside life on
1: it's really nice and and quiet and lots of trees and it's great for running and for thinking i really like it
0: oh that sounds good yeah that's one of the things i love to do as well is to just get out in nature and just you know remove everything and just be alone with your thoughts kind of
1: yeah yeah when i when i go out and run i don't really have the capacity to think uh But it's, yeah, I I, I like the quietness and not doing anything in the evenings and uh, just, you know, a slower life.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because online things can get quite hectic and especially like like people like you and me, uh, you know, doing lots of different projects and probably having lots of different ideas all the time, you know, being able to just focus a little bit and do something else is quite nice.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Cool, so the first question I need to ask you is, did you ever consider rebranding Objective-C.io to Swift.io?
1: Yeah, all the time. Well, the moment Swift got announced, somebody already grabbed Swift.io, so.
0: Oh, I see.
1: It was out of the question. Um, uh. I think, yeah, the name is the name is confusing to some people, but on the other hand, I kind of like the old school thing that's attached to it. But yeah, we always think about it. and. I've heard of at least one person who didn't buy our book uh, because it has Objective C on the on the first page on the title page even.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, I think I guess it goes both ways because you also have a really strong brand, right, with Objective C.io, and a lot of people know about it. So, I mean, I guess you might lose a couple of people here and there because the the uh, the title is called Objective C, but. At the same time, I guess you also have a huge audience that knows your brand and that knows that the products you put out are great quality. So there's huge value in that too, I think.
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I, it's just also, it's, it's a lot of work to, to, to do stuff like rebranding. And I, I, it's important these kind of things, but I like focusing more on, on Swift and writing the stuff than on everything around it.
0: Yeah, totally. I agree. All the other things are just means to an end right absolutely cool so the main thing on the site that you do right now at least the thing that that are about swift is the swift talk video series that you do together with uh, florian kugler
1: yeah yeah we um so both florian and me are are, are into woodworking and uh, we both had a phase where we went through uh, a little youtube addiction where we would watch woodworking videos well not together but uh, (laughs) it's it's such a great way to learn um practical things and um we thought that there was an opportunity there and um we we like teaching swift and we thought with videos you can just show very different things than what you could can show in an article so stuff like refactoring is much easier i think to show in a video than it is to uh, to write an article about, uh, and also much easier to consume. Um, so that's sort of the inspiration, uh, uh showing people how we do things and how we go about, uh, working on a, um, Swift code and, um, yeah, to have it sort of an, as an additional way of learning, uh, and not only, not only have text.
0: Yeah. I think it's a super cool format. It's, uh. I also love the fact that you basically just jump into the code and you do like a screen sharing. It's like a live coding session, right? And uh, a lot of focus on the code and different solutions and like you say, refactoring and things like that, which I think is super cool.
1: Yeah, it's really fun to, to do and it takes a lot of work uh, to prepare a single episode, but it's it's really worth it. and and. Um... I think, yeah, working with Florian is also really nice. Uh, it's just, it's such a, it's so much fun to work together on these things and, and, and then show them off. Uh, that's just really cool.
0: Yeah, totally. So you do the video series and uh, the site, obviously, and now also you are, uh, well, you've been writing quite a lot of books also in the past, but I also hear, rumor has it, that there's a new book coming out that you've been working on. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So about a year ago, uh, I was in Australia for the playgrounds conference, and, uh, this is where I met Matt Gallagher, uh, from Cocoa with love. And we sat together to write this, or not to write. We sat together and talked about, uh, writing a book maybe. And one of the things we thought about is doing something like a hundred different ways to implement an iOS app, um, because both of us believed, um, that. It's, it's possible to, to write a, a high quality app with good code in any kind of architecture. Uh, and we don't really believe there's this one best architecture. And so as we brainstorm more about it, and also together with Florian, we uh, realized that something about app architecture would be very interesting to write about and, and to teach. Um, so that's what we chose uh, as the title app architecture nice yeah it's um it's a two-part book uh so after we started writing we got pretty far and we were almost finished in a way and in september we realized yeah this just doesn't work the, the format so we threw everything away and we started over and um and divided the book up into two parts so one is more architecture at the high level stuff like model view controller and mvvm and then the second part is more the implementation details because there's this big gap right if you draw some boxes in a diagram uh it's very different from what the code looks like oh yeah Um, totally so we think both are very important and and the second part is often a little bit less highlighted when people talk about architecture Uh, so that's why we chose to do the book in two parts and, and focus on Basically, do a top-down and a bottom-up approach.
0: Oh, nice! That sounds uh, super interesting. Architecture is definitely one of these like really hot topics, and you know it's kind of like whenever I ask uh, the audience for questions for this show, or you know on Twitter or something, it's like almost every like fourth or fifth question is about architecture, and you know it makes total sense because. You know, it's, in a way, what we're always doing when we are coding and as programmers is we're trying to kind of make sense of this, like, big code base and, and trying to make it easier to work with and easier to understand. And architecture plays a huge role in that. And like you say, there's, you know, it's hard to say that there's, like, this one approach that always works because every app is different. And, tr- you know, trying to have a procedure about it and and, and something you can follow to kind of you know go about designing an architecture i think is super important
1: yeah and i think everybody has had this problem where their code base is a mess and it's common to blame this on the architecture um, and in ios applications the most common architecture is model view controller and so there's a lot of hate uh, or in other words, um, maybe more productive is there are a lot of alternatives to, <laughs> to one of your controllers. Yeah. And um, and there's always this belief, like, you know, I have a messy code base. And then if I use, you know, some new three letter acronym uh, or maybe four or five letters, then everything is going to be solved and my code is going to be clean. Yeah. And in a way. I do believe that, that a good architecture can help, but I think it's not necessarily just a problem of model view controller. I think you can make a mess in almost any architecture, just like you can write clean code. And I think this is sort of, you know, it's the same thing as with self-help books. They are very popular because people want to improve their lives. And, and it's also sort of aspirational. Like if I just read this one book, then everything is going to, all my problems are going to be solved. And I think there is this belief that a good architecture does the same thing and you know just just looking at the at the names in the diagram is not um is is not going to solve all of your problems so i think that's why it's such a hot topic because you know everybody has this problem and um everybody believes it's going to solve their problem
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely Cool. We're going to talk a lot more about architecture in just a little while because we have a great question coming up around architecture. Um, So what do you say? Should we get started with the questions and topics that have been submitted by listeners? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So as you know, this show is all about answering questions and talking about topics that were submitted by the listeners. And this is kind of really important for the show because it's what keeps it going forward. It's what keeps it fresh. And it also keeps make sure that what we talk about here is something that you guys and girls feels is relevant for you. So if you have a topic or a question that you'd like us to discuss on the show, well, it's super simple. You just tweet it to @swiftbysondel on Twitter. So if you think about a topic right now or after the show where, "Oh, I would really like uh, this to be on the next episode." Well, just tweet it our way and we'll make sure to bring it up at some point. Another way to send in questions and topics is to go to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, where you can also submit questions there. So for this episode, we're going to kick it off with a great question that comes from Shenghua Wu. And Shenghua asks, can you talk about functional programming with the iOS SDK? So Chris, I know that you are a big functional programming fan, um, and the iOS SDK is kind of not very functional in the way it's organized. So how do you usually go about kind kind of trying to apply some of these functional patterns when working with the iOS SDK?
1: It's, it's such a good question. Um, and it's so hard to answer. Uh, <laughs> but there are a lot of interesting things we can talk about, I think. So yeah, I, I completely agree that the, the iOS SDK and specifically UIKit was not designed with functional programming in mind. Um, it's very imperative, um, but it does a really great job at what it should be doing. Um, you know, people write really great apps with it. So I think the first thing is uh, that for me, functional programming is not the goal. I really like it and I think there's a lot of inspiration to be drawn from it. But it shouldn't be um, forced uh, and, it, and you don't have to apply it. Uh, I think uh, when you think about functional programming, it's always the question, what does it really mean to be functional or what does functional programming mean? And there is no one right answer. So everybody has their own interpretation and and a language like Lisp is quite different from Haskell. Both are functional and in both. You can do functional programming, but it means a completely different thing almost. Yeah. Um, and for me, the, there are three, things that I really like about functional programming, uh, and uh, about my, uh, interpretation of functional programming. <laughs> so one is type safety and, and we can totally add that to UIKit kit and add it on top of UIKit. kit. So, um, I once wrote a wrapper for notifications and it adds type safety to notifications, uh, you know, for example, in a keyboard will show a notification. You just know that, um keyboard frame is going to be there and right. you can wrap these things up and, and just, um, be sure about, about the code you're calling. A second part, I think that's important with functional programming is how you design your data types. And I think you wrote a blog post that captured it really well, the um, the analytics blog post where you define an enum for analytics. Right. And these kind of things are now possible uh, in Swift, and they weren't possible in Objective C. And and a lot of these ideas come from functional programming. Um, about, for example, uh, enums with associated values. Yeah. Um, and I think that's another way we can use functional programming to. We can look at um, at functional. Programs or other languages and see how they solve problems and bring those things to Swift where they make sense. Um, so I think there was a a great example um, of bringing something functional to UIKit. And then the third thing I think that's awesome about functional programming is how they divide things into components. So functional programmers they really like little functions and and combined with the type safety. They often use functions and types and data types to define mini languages, like little DSLs and thinking about what are the essential components of these DSLs and how do I combine them? They really help me when I try to write a, uh, uh, even when I write something that's directly on top of UIKit with classes, for example, it just helps me think about problems and. I think that's the way functional programming is best applied when working with UIKit. Um, it's it's as a way to think. So even if you don't directly use all of the ideas, you can you can think about solving your problems in a functional way, and maybe that will guide your eventual or your ultimate decision on how you solve something.
0: Yeah, totally. I'm totally uh, on board with that as well. Um, Another thing I love about functional programming is, you know, how easy it is to kind of compose things. And this, of course, ties in with the component kind of approach that you just talked about, where, you know, instead of building something which is massive, and it has lots of different functionality, you can just split things up into multiple smaller parts, and then just compose them. And having these like small little helper functions that you can then just combine. And one way to kind of apply this a little bit to the iOS SDK is by using extensions. So if you want to do something with like a view that, you know, you want to do uh, something very custom, you could split this up into many different functions that just do a small part of it. And then you could compose those at the call site where you can more easily be more flexible about what you want to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's another, another great example. I think one thing that always scares people when, when they read about functional programming is that it's supposed to be really easy. And and I would agree. I think functional programming and composing functions, it's all super easy and super nice and clean and and good and easy to understand. But I know it's not so easy to learn. And I think that's a big, um, that's, that's a thing that, that really can put you off. If you're trying to learn and everybody keeps saying like, oh, it's just so easy. You just combine and compose these functions. And then, you know, it's, um, If you're trying to learn functional programming and and, and the concepts don't make sense straight away, it's not you. There are definitely some really hard parts to learn, but there's this feeling once you go through that, that all of a sudden a lot of things make sense and are easy. And uh, it's, it's not so easy always to cross that bridge. Yeah,
0: it's one of those things where, you know, once it clicks, you kind of get it, right?
1: Yes, and then you don't get why it was so hard.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's hard to look back then. Yeah. Uh, another thing I think is good to keep in mind is that when you're working against something like the iOS SDK, there's a lot of like big parts of your code that are not actually touching the SDK itself, and they're just relying more on Swift as the language and the standard library than they're relying on the actual iOS SDK. And I think kind of applying more of these functional patterns there might give you more freedom, because then you're not so much tied into the actual, like the way the SDK is structured and the MVC and things like that, where you, know, you have your own objects and you can structure them the way you want. And I think also that's a good way because that will also enable your code to be more flexible. And if you at some point later want to like support more platforms, if you have your kind of logic code and your own code more like loosely coupled with the actual iOS SDK, well, it will be a lot easier to port it.
1: Yeah, that's really great advice. I completely agree
0: cool uh, another thing I wanted to bring up is uh, when actually you know working with the ios SDK and you want to apply some of these functional patterns uh, one thing that I found really useful is to use UI collection view uh, for you know for different types of uis uh, because UI collection view it's not like purely functional or anything but it has some interesting functional characteristics like for example the way it deals with layout it's you basically get a call to return the layout attributes for a given rectangle or for a given uh, index paths, and this is kind of functional, where you just have input output. So if you if you do some some nice little little things there, you can actually make a UI collection view pretty much functional uh, and have very little state uh, if you want to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think this also this focus on state is very uh, important in functional programming and. Sometimes this is, this is called pure functional programming, where you, where you have a pure function, which means, uh, it doesn't have side effects. And then of course, if you don't know those terms, the question is, what does it mean to have side effects? <laughs> um, but I think I learned a lot from that. And and if people are interested in learning about it, I would definitely recommend researching this, uh, and pure functional programming and side effects and, and see what, what the hype is all about. And, you know, at worst case you can discuss with functional programmers about these things. And I think best case, you will probably learn a lot and and think different about your own code.
0: Yeah, totally. Cool. So we're going to segue now into a uh, related topic, but it's going to be more about architecture like we discussed earlier also. And this one comes from Suhit. And Suhit asks, can you guys talk about different architectural patterns like MVVM and functional reactive programming?
1: There is, there is a lot to talk about there. So, uh, I think, so one, like, like I said before, people are sometimes looking for the architecture to solve all of their problems and, um, yeah, I, I don't think there is one. Um, it makes sense also to, to think about what, what does it mean, uh, to have an architecture. So, the way I think about it is in. In UIKit, we have this feedback loop between between view and model. Uh, So the view sends events and then something needs to interpret those events and change the model. And then when the model changes, you need to update your views and this goes on and on and on. And um, then the question is, how do you do those steps, those transformations and and, uh, who owns these things? And with model view controller, that's the controller layer. It's it's in between and. Mm. then there are a lot of alternatives and, and I think most of them focus on replacing the controller layer because the views are basically almost always UI views and the model layer is your own code. It could use core data or whatever, but it's sort of independent from the rest. So all of the architectural patterns are about replacing that controller layer. And, um, I mean, that's a simplification, but still. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, MVVM is basically well, the view model is basically a, a, what a controller is in MVC, except that it doesn't know about the views, so it only prepares all the all the data for the views. And reactive programming is often used in combination with MVVM to 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 basically provide signals or um uh observables that the view can can then listen to um so i don't think you know often when you use mvvm you would use it together with reactive programming um and then there are so many more architectures that all solve specific problems um i think it's really hard to give advice for which one to use and which one is better i think they all have their own um qualities and One thing that I do think is very interesting is how they give you different flexibility. So MVC gives you a lot of flexibility. You can do so many different implementations and and it would still be called MVC. Um, Other architectures like the Elm architecture, um, which is an architecture used in in the Elm programming language, they don't give you all this flexibility. You have way less flexibility. And so um, you don't have the same thing as with MVC. Uh, if you look at an Elm programming, it's, it's, it's always very similar to other Elm programs. Whereas in MVC, um, I'm pretty sure if you look at my implementation of MVC, it's quite different from your implementation of MVC.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think this is a very interesting point that you bring up. And I think this is kind of what divides a lot of people where, you know, some people, they really prefer this flexibility and they're like, well, MVC is great because, you know, I know how to use it. I know how to kind of, uh, constrain myself to not put all of my code in my view controller and have it be massive, several thousand lines. Uh, but I love the flexibility of it while some other people, they will say, well, you know, it's that kind of flexibility is kind of dangerous because it leads often to this kind of messy code. So if we instead put more structure in and more kind of this rigidness, well, then it's going to be a lot easier for not only for yourself, but for other people who are going to read your code. And I think both of these arguments, you know, it's, it's, there's no right and wrong answer. And it depends a little bit about what you're optimizing for. So uh, one kind of common pitfall and i think you know the reason that there, are especially on ios so many of these kind of alternative architectures popping up all the time is it's very easy for the view controller to get too many responsibilities because kind of out of the box it needs to manage the views it needs to kind of talk to the model it needs to also talk to the system layer with things like the status bar navigation bar and keyboard and what have you so it's very easy when you just write your Kind of boilerplate view controller that does some of these things you're already up to like two or 300 lines of code and then you need to add your logic right so i think this is kind of where it comes from and we talked a little bit about this on previous episodes with Sarouche, for example where we talked about like you know i think great architectures they need to be kind of tailor made to the app you're building and to try to split things out whenever possible and yeah but at the, at the end of the day it kind of Depends on you know, what do you want to optimize for and what kind of? Problems are you looking to kind of solve and what problems are you willing to take on?
1: Yeah, and I think the context is also really important who is on your team and what what skills do they have and um, How experimental do you want to go and what do you prefer? Um, and I think so one, one thing I found very interesting is, um, looking at the Kickstarter open source code base. So if you, it, so it, the Kickstarter app is entirely open source. And, um, if you look at their code base, it's really easy to find your way around after a few minutes of looking at things. Uh, and I think that it's not necessarily just because they chose MVVM, um, I I think it's because they apply the same architecture to all their components. And I think that's that's a really big win regardless of what architecture you, cho- you choose, if you're consistent
0: yeah, totally.
1: and have a single architecture, then it just becomes easy to find things. So you know that you have to look in the view model or you, ha- you know that you have to look in the UI view subclass.
0: Yeah, you have like a frame of reference. It's like you, you, you have an index to the code base
1: exactly and you need to make less decisions about where to put things that's another big thing right like do you do you put this in your view controller do you make an extra class or you know like it just uh, it, if you if you have um a unified architecture you you take a lot of these decisions away and i think you know in a big code base that's that's very helpful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's another thing. You know, it's like, it's very different if you're designing an architecture for an app, you're going to work on yourself or you're working with maybe with some of your friends or you're working like in a huge company with hundred employees. And that will definitely have to guide your decision. And sometimes, you know, we go to conferences and we hear talks from people coming from these big, big companies and they tell us, about, you know, how they do things. And, you know, when I was working at Spotify, I was one of those people who were like, here's how we do things at Spotify. And I think it's always important to, when you try to apply apply some of that advice to your own code base, well, you have to also think about, you know, I might be in a very different situation because my team is only has three people. So maybe we need to optimize for slightly different things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the bigger your app becomes, the, the more important it becomes to have this, um, I don't mind writing everything in a single view controller. If it's a tiny app, Uh, you know, as long as the app does what it should do, that's fine. Uh, But at least the moment I start working with other people or start working on something for a longer time, it becomes really important to think about these things. And yeah, I think it both at the high and the low level. So both what architecture do I use um, and what acronym basically do I (laughs) think? As well as how do I solve things like, um, uh, my managing my large view controllers or managing the state or communicating between things. Um, I think, you know, there, there are many questions then that are, that become important.
0: Yeah, totally. So should we say that bottom line is people should just read your new book?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I at least it gives them an overview. It so the problem is it doesn't answer the que- question which architecture <laughs> should should I use? But yeah, totally. Um I I guess this is maybe a point where I should say that it's available in pre-release now. Um and depending on when you hear this, if you hear this after April, uh it's also ready. Um But yeah, uh People should, people should read it and, and, and look at it.
0: Yeah, sounds good. Awesome. So let's move over now to the next question. And this one comes from, and I should be able to pronounce this name because it's a Polish name, but, you know, still I am having some difficulties with, with the pronunciation for Polish. So I'm going to give it my best shot. And it's uh, Boje Wdowikowski. I think I got that right. Sorry if I didn't. Uh, But anyway, this is a great question, I think. It's, um, in your early days, when you weren't well-known, did you have trouble with approaching and starting a conversation with other developers at conferences? How did you handle that? I can imagine now it's not an issue at all, so people approach you and not the other way around. So the reason I think this is interesting is because I feel like I've noticed a lot, especially lately, as kind of, I've started my blog and I have, uh, you know, this podcast and other things and on Twitter that, you know, now, you know, I go to conferences and some people already know me from online and they will come up and talk to me. Well, before that, that definitely wasn't the case. And I think there are some interesting kind of observations that I've made now uh, that I think we could talk about, about, like, you know, how we approach people who we know from the internet or not, and kind of, you know, maybe some things that could be good to keep in mind. So how do you feel about this topic, Chris?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So maybe, yeah. So when I started as a developer uh, um, in the Netherlands, I would sometimes go to meetups and, and try to talk to people. And, uh, and I would notice if I was in the room that some people would just look over my shoulder to see if there's somebody more interesting to talk to. Um, and I felt, uh, definitely I felt underappreciated. I felt like, you know, like I, I'm maybe this good and, and the, the other person, uh, thinks I'm way less, uh, interesting or, or less able than, than I actually am. Um, and you know, there's this deep, there's this deep wish to be appreciated, I think for, for almost everybody. Yeah. Um, so then, uh, I think. By the time I started UI Conf, uh, I was on the stage and, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, a few hundred people knew me <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And then people come up to you and then, you know, Objective-C.io happened and, and everything else. And I started speaking at conferences and it became really easy for me, uh, to talk to people because like in the question, they would come up to me, um, and you know, I find it hard though, sometimes to approach people. Uh, so it's, it's definitely way easier and a funny thing happened is that I think in between that time where I was starting as a developer and now I, I definitely learned, but not, I wouldn't say I'm like twice as good or something. I, I I'm just a little better, um, and have a little bit more, more experience, but the way people perceive me is very different. So I, I think people definitely overestimate my skills and abilities. Um, and you know, the fact that I have a lot of, uh, internet points, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't necessarily make me a better programmer, but you know, as humans, I think we simplify and the moment somebody is well known, we, we think, well, they must also be well-skilled or something. And, you know, there's, there's a danger in, in, when you see, uh, people who are internet famous and you shouldn't automatically you know put them on a what's the word put them on a pedestal pedestal. yeah yeah it's it doesn't necessarily mean that they're smarter than you are uh and and also the other way around Uh, people who are not well known um are often very smart and, and, and experienced and have a lot of interesting things to say so um i think it's sort of natural that we look up to people who are more well-known than we are, but I think it's also dangerous. And, um, yeah, I, it's, it's a weird situation.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it totally is. Um, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, for me, it's a little bit like, I'm super, super happy and really grateful for everyone who like reads all my things and, you know, listens to the show and, you know, follows me on Twitter whatever. It's, uh, it's awesome, and whenever someone will, like, send me a message or an email or something that, you know, they like my work or that they were inspired to do something, that is really an amazing feeling. So I love kind of that part, and I'm I'm super happy for everyone who kind of, you know, follows me and, and, and likes what I do. But I also never want people to kind of put me on this pedestal, and that kind of makes me a little bit uncomfortable, where... um. You know, I I don't think that I'm better than anyone else. I don't try to be better than anyone else. I am kind of just a developer and I happen to have a blog and a podcast and I love doing that and I'm doing it for fun, uh, not to kind of become famous or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when I go to conferences, my main goal at a conference is to talk to people and to hear new ideas and to discuss things and to have fun. And sometimes, like this, where we talk about the danger with this, is sometimes I, I get messages from people, like on Twitter, where they say, Oh, I saw you at this conference, but I didn't want to come up and talk to you because I felt like I would, you know, disturb you or I felt like you were too busy for me. And this is where I'm like, Hang on, something is wrong here. <laughs> where yeah. I'm actually going to this conference to talk to people and I never want people to feel like they can't approach me. And I feel like, Kind of the problem here a little bit is this like kind of rock star culture that sometimes happens in in our industry where it's like oh this person is a rock star he's awesome or she's awesome and uh, you know it becomes kind of too big where at the end of the day we're all these developers trying to figure things out and we should all just help each other and talk about things and. You know, I just want to say this, like, if you are ever at a conference where I am, well, just come up and talk to me. I love talking to other people at conferences. And I don't think you should ever feel, you should never feel like you can't do that. Because everyone is kind of at a conference to talk to people. That's why we go to conferences. We go to share ideas and to hear new ideas.
1: Yeah, I, th- I completely agree. And, um, you know, I, t- I also love that. Like, I love talking to other people at conferences. And, and I don't like it when people are afraid. Uh, and, and, you know, the thing there to realize, the only difference is that, um, for example, you are more famous than, than, um, most attendees and, and the same for me. Uh, and that doesn't mean we're different people. It doesn't mean we're better. It doesn't mean anything really. It's just, it's just that, uh, yeah. (laughs) Well, so maybe one thing about, um, about this question that I think think is interesting is, um, why why do we do all this? And for me, um, I I really liked writing things, and I really like bringing people together. So that's why I started these conferences also, um, because I just felt that there should be a conference in berlin and then later on with the functional swift conference i just really wanted to have all these functional swift developers in one room and talk with them and listen to them and and learn from them and um i think that's that's one of the really cool things about a conference and about starting these things and um and at the same time um writing about what Um, what I'm working on and about the things I learn, I think just helps me a lot, uh, in, in getting a clear picture of how I think. And, and there's this additional benefit that you get more well-known. Um, but for me, I try not to focus too much on that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's more of an external thing because, you know, maybe something happens and people don't like me anymore and you know, if, if my fame would define my happiness that's that's a quite a different quite a uh dangerous thing so I just try to write things that I want to write and do things that I want to do and and then hopefully it makes people happy and you know the the fame is sort of a side effects uh, yeah it's
0: not a pure function <laughs> <definitely> <laughs> <not>. <laughs> exactly yeah I totally agree and uh you know for me also it's like I've come kind of to the point where you know i i i I realized that i really love sharing my work and it kind of feels like if i don't share my work if i just keep it a secret i feel like oh you know something is missing and i don't mean that that you know i go ahead and share my client's work of course not i'm not talking about my own things that i do you know in my spare time and that just gives it an extra level of of just fun for me like you know if I can make something, you know, some, some game development things and I can share some work in progress and get feedback on it, it just makes it more fun for me. And, yeah, I, I think that's that's the kind of the core thing. And the same thing goes for speaking at conferences. And I've, I think that many people who share things online and they go to conferences to speak, they, they kind of feel the same way. They do it mostly because it's a fun thing to do and, and they love speaking with people in the community. So I think, you know, if you are in a conference or you're, you're, you're speaking to someone online, Uh, I think that's good to keep in mind. All right. So we're going to do one more question and this one comes from Chris Karani and Chris asks, which mobile database is the best bet for startups or indie developers? Should we use realm or Firebase or SQLite or core data? So I think this is a very interesting question it kind of ties in a little bit to uh, the architecture discussion we had before because it's about making these kind of tech decisions like which path to uh, do I go down so Chris when you're faced with one of these kind of questions like you know you're starting a new app you need to decide on database layer to use how do you usually approach kind of this uh, decision
1: it's a very good question. Uh, and again, hard to answer, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, the
0: boring answer, it depends.
1: It depends. Um, <laughs> and and then the less boring answer is I use my intuition, uh, <laughs> which I shaped over the years. Uh, or so, I write my own. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, no, I, 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 oh, that would be interesting actually. But, yeah, uh,
0: which database do you use? Well, I just write my own. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's, um, so, for example, choosing between ROM and Firebase should be fairly easy. Uh, I think one is more useful for real-time stuff and the other one um, when you need maybe offline support. Um, there there are definitely qualitative differences between the databases uh, or, or in differences in capabilities. So that's one thing to research, like what do you need for your specific application? And, you um, which, which databases are left basically after you spec'd out all the requirements. Another question to ask yourself is, do you want to use a commercial product? Do you, and specifically, do you want to use a product by a startup, um, which might move fast? So things might improve a lot, but they might also get bought, um, which might mean, you know, uh, that you, that you have to read one of these it's been an incredible journey (laughs) on medium (laughs) right yeah um and the question is also do you want to experiment more or 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 do you want to rely upon proven technology um i think something like sqlite is 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 always um it's a very proven technology you can do a lot of stuff with it you can store uh, even files and SQLite. um, I think they now have support for right ahead logging. So you can, um, use that for syncing. And there's, there's a lot of opportunities there. If you need more convenience on top of that, you can use core data. Um, for my latest app, I'm just using plain files in the file system. Yeah. Um, which works well enough. Mm-hmm. Um. I think, uh, another interesting approach, if you want to get more experimental is to use something like Git, uh, if so, this is especially useful when you have a document based app, uh, you could store your document document in a Git repository or put it the other way around your Git repository could be your document Yeah. and then you get versioning and branching. Um, there's a talk, I think by Will Shipley about this, um, And yeah, I don't think there's a right or wrong approach.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it comes down... You know, I always say that when you're making decisions like this, you have to kind of mix a little bit between requirements and your own personal preference. Uh, And also, I think one important thing to keep in mind is to be able to experiment with different things and change your mind. So, for example, let's say you're building an app, and you're building this app over the course of a year before you're shipping it, the the 1.0. During that year, especially if you go through a lot of experimentation, your requirements might change, and you might start with something simple, like you know just storing files in in the file system or using as user defaults. Uh, but then you might need something more complex, and at the beginning, you might say, well, let me just try to use SQLite because that's you know lightweight, low overhead just you know use it very easily or maybe not super easily but you can you can add it to your app easily Um, but then you might think well actually i heard about these realms i want to maybe try that and i think this is extremely important to enable you to have this kind of flexibility so for this reason what i usually do especially with database solutions is i abstract them so that the app layer doesn't need to know about the concrete database that i use so instead of using like realm, uh, the realm object, like everywhere in my lo- in my controllers or in my logic code, I usually create like a database protocol. And I actually wrote a blog post about this called separation of concerns using protocols in Swift. And it's about like how to separate that concern away from the actual objects that are using the database itself. And what's cool about this is as you're going through these iterations and your requirements change or just your opinion changes and you learn about something new. Uh, you can change your mind. You can more easily just change the underlying implementation of the actual storing of the data instead of having go- to go through your entire app and refactoring all of it because you want to try something new.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, and the protocol sort of then becomes the requirement for what you need from your from your database layer.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: In um, So in our book, what we did is for each of the major architectures we cover, we implemented the same, the exact same app, um, a, a simple voice notes recording app, and used a completely different architecture. And then at some point, I also wanted to see if we could swap out the model layer easily. We never took any steps to make that easy up front, so we didn't abstract anything. We just used, I think, a JSON store. Okay. Uh, just one simple JSON file. And then I changed it to core data and it turned out to be a really quick task. Um, it, it wasn't difficult at all, uh, to, to change the entire model layer because usually the model layer is, is, is already isolated from the rest of your code, even if your controller uses it. Um, it it's fairly doable to swap it out. Uh, and yeah, I think. The controller layer often needs to do two things when it talks to the database. So it, it, in model view controller, it usually pulls the data from the store to display it, and then it needs to subscribe to that data. And depending on your database, both of these, um, things work a little bit differently, so subscribing to the data and pulling the, and fetching the data basically, um, works a little bit differently. If you, if you have an abstract layer on top of it, then you don't even need to change that out, but I found that changing my model completely only had very little influence on my controller layer.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's just a sign that you've, you know, designed a good architecture, I guess, because then you don't have these like, you know, dependencies everywhere and, you know, things the making hard assumptions about the implementation of something else. The thing I think you should focus on is to learn about these different solutions and kind of what the pros and cons are and try them out because they are very different and like you say, said in the beginning, there are definitely like things to be aware of, like that this thing might change a lot, or this thing is kind of has a lot of legacy, so it might have a very crufty API. And you know, learning about those trade-offs, I think, is the most important thing because then you kind of have that with you. So then, when you're building another app or you're facing another like similar decision, you kind of have a like a f- frame of reference that you can use to make these decisions.
1: Yeah, what, one thing I used to do is, is I, let's say I had an app and then I found that my model layer was lacking or my database choice. And then the thing I would do is I would read up a little bit on, on the latest new thing and use that because it would solve all my problems. Um, now I take a, an approach that's way more similar to what you do and first experiment. So, so you, you said, uh, in a previous episode that you create a lot of new playgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do the same thing. And before Playgrounds, I would, I would create a lot of new sample projects, uh, uh, called delete me or throw me away. (laughs) Um, And now I'm, I'm much more hesitant to, to directly use something, but I will first create a sample project or a Playground to test something out. And I think that's, that's, I, I mean, in hindsight, it makes total sense, but to me, it wasn't clear at the time that you could really experiment more with things before putting them in your actual project.
0: Yeah, and I think one kind of reason for this, why people kind of feel this way is because usually we're kind of in a hurry when we're building things, like we have a deadline or we have a customer that's paying per hour. But my way of thinking around this is like, I could either take like half a day or one day and explore all these solutions and come up with a really good decision that will actually work really well for my app or I could make, just rush into something and have to live with it for the entire course of development, which will probably cost me if I ra- make the quote unquote wrong decision, uh, it could end up costing me a lot more than one day of development time.
1: Yeah, that's true. And and maybe another another reason is also because uh, a, of course, if you go to a database, uh, database's GitHub page or website or, or what have you, you'll, find reasons to use that database, but they won't usually tell you when not to use it. <laughs> yeah, um, of course. Yeah. And, and looking for yourself what what the API feels like and what the limitations are is I think way better than, than, than reading the marketing copy. And, you know, um, I, when I say marketing copy, I also mean the GitHub readme of, uh, whatever open source project there is, uh. Yeah, I, I think it's good to
0: stay critical.
1: And I mean, not not be negative, but just, you know, see if it fits your needs.
0: Awesome. So that's all the questions that we have time for for this episode. So I want to thank everyone who sent in questions and who continue to do so. Again, if you want to send a question or a topic for an upcoming episode, just tweet it to at Swift by on Twitter, or go to Swift slash podcast to submit it. So we've reached now the end of this episode, so all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Chris, for joining me on the show. Thank you, John. It was such a pleasure. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So uh, you have a new book coming out. Uh, Where can people go to find out more about the book and the work that you do? Uh,
1: Just go to ObjectiveC.io and it's spelled OBJC.
0: Uh, we'll also put links in the show notes to objective and to the book and to Swift Talks and all the other things that you do. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, your Twitter is, what's your Twitter handle?
1: It's the same as my name, Chris Eidhoff. Uh, it's spelled Chris and then E-I-D-H-O-F.
0: Perfect. And if you want to find me on Twitter, you can find me at John Sundell. And you can find everything about this show and the weekly blog posts at swiftbysundell.com. Thanks so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.